this is a series we're in now entitled Love in Context. Love in Context, this is the third message in the series. And uh, this seemed important to me because very often, you know, that is the, the paradigm that, uh, that we have of what it means to be a Christian. It's built around love. It should be. And of course, you know, I've shared that uh, that doesn't mean you roll over and let the world walk on you. Doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that you're going to be a doormat for the devil or anyone he's using. But it means you understand how to relate to other people in a way that opens them to your influence. Or I should say the influence of God through you. Relationships are hugely important. And the only way they work right is when they are constrained by the love of God. Now, love, it's important you know what it means, what it is. Uh, we most often associate love with a, a feeling of affection, perhaps, or uh, attachment or attraction to someone. Those are not uh, what the Bible refers to as the God kind of love. Although agape love, the Greek word agape used for love, the New Testament, which means to give, your relationship should be based on what you can give into that relationship, not on what that relationship can do for you. And that's the way most people approach relationships. From marriage right on down the line. You know, what can you do for me? What's in this relationship for me? The question should be what's in it for them through you. Because the only way relationships are going to be profitable to anybody is when both parties to the relationship are focused on how they can make the relationship better, on what they can do to meet someone else's need even ahead of their own. And what you give into that relationship can be anything from prayer to time to a listening ear uh, to financial help to encouragement or exhortation can be any number of things. But your life is a resource that you can share with other people for their benefit, not yours. And it's unconditional. It isn't predicated on who likes, who looks like you, who comes from the same cultural heritage you do, who thinks like you do, who's smart enough to like you. It's real easy to love people that love you. But the kind of love we're talking about is unconditional. It is patterned after the God kind of love. That's what agape is called. And God so loved the world that he gave. When you love somebody the way the word says we should, you will give to their best interest, not take. And you might say to yourself, well, how's my need ever going to get met? That's the interesting part. God will take care of you if you take care of the people he brings to you. Somebody say amen to that. So then, uh, love in context refers to the fact that most people think they know what love means, and, we, and they say, yeah, well, you know, uh, you'll know us by our love. Christians, we're Christians. You'll know us by our love, but they don't have a clue what love really, uh, how it works and how it's going to make a difference in your life. So when you talk about in context, there are larger truths in Scripture within which love will function or not at all. And so those contextual understandings of what love is becomes important to us. I used a couple of examples in starting the series of, for instance, we're, we're to speak the truth in love, meaning there's always a connection between truth and love. Now, truth without love effectively has been weaponized. It can be used to hurt, belittle, degrade, you know, all in the religious sense of, well, I wanted them to know the truth of how they're living or what they're doing. No, it can be, without love, truth will be a, a weapon. And in a religious sense, it has been a weapon that many people have used to hurt other folks. And uh, so, truth is not going to set the captive free unless it comes in love packaged in love. And the reverse is true as well. Love won't work without truth. 
Otherwise, if you try to uh, love somebody and it's not founded in truth, then it's just a form of religious manipulation. Somebody say amen to all of it. And so these are the kind of contextual distinctions that we need to understand if we are to have a, a, a feeling for what love really does look like. The Bible says that faith works by love. This is, this is an important concept because Jesus said, your life will be unto you according to your, your faith. Meaning that your belief system is going to define who and what you are and how you experience life. Uh, you may not like to think that because it's much easier to blame shift and say, well, my life is like it is because so-and-so didn't like me and they fired me and terminated my job or uh, this or that or the other. We've always got reasons why our life doesn't work out right. But your life is going to be according to your faith, according to Jesus. Now, faith is defined as the investment of your belief system in the Word of God meaning the only truth that is going to set you free is the truth that you believe and that originates from the Bible, from the Word of God. There are a lot of secular viewpoints out there about how we should live and what will make you happy. They don't matter. They are not worth a hill of beans. But the truths of God's Word, such as love constraining your relationships, or telling you how your life is going to work best for you. When you're told to be kind and gentle, when you're told to believe the best of other people and hope the best, it's telling you how your life is going to be working the best. But you have to believe it in order for you to invest your heart in the way you live in it, you're going to have to believe it. A man is as he thinketh in his heart. If you think or you believe you're a failure, you will be a failure. If you believe you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, you will be a world changer. But it's going to be unto you according to your faith. Yet the Bible says that faith only works by love. Meaning that if you're busy using your faith, to bless yourself, to gratify yourself, then your faith isn't going to work. I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, I have really studied, meditated. I know I believe the Word, but it simply doesn't seem to be working for me. My, my natural circumstances aren't changing. And the first thing I always think about, well, how's your love walk? Because faith only works by love. Now, here's what that suggests to us, that when your interest in believing for something, uh, like money, you know, God's interested in your prosperity. A lot of the body of Christ doesn't know that, but God's not into poverty, never has been. He says he takes pleasure in the prosperity of his servant, that he wishes above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospers even as you have the peace and the joy of God working in your life. He wants you to prosper physically or financially, and he wants you to be healed. He wants these things. So why aren't you that way? If indeed he's God and he can do anything, and that's what he wants for you, why aren't you that way? Why aren't you the healed? Why isn't your bank account running over? Why aren't these things happening? Faith only works by love. That means if you're in it for self-gratification, you want more money so you can retire early and play goof or golf or whatever you call it. If I have any golfers in here, uh, I apologize. I don't play golf, so I don't like golf. But at any rate, if you want to retire early so you can do whatever you want to do, and that's the only reason you're believing God for more money and more capacity to, to you know, to bless yourself, then that's not love that is going to make your faith work. In 2 Corinthians 9, we're told that it's the will of God that you have all sufficiency 
in all things. He doesn't want you uh, on the verge of bankruptcy your whole life. But he says the reason he wants that, aside from the fact that you're his, his child and he loves you, he wants you blessed, but he's not going to interfere with the free moral agency you exercise in this life as, as regards what to believe and how to live this life. He's going to allow you to do that yourself. He won't manipulate the choices that you make. And so when you are using your faith to bless yourself, then that's not an occasion where your faith will work. But when you have all sufficiency in all things, God's provision has come into your life and you have excess, the word says it's so you can abound to every good work. Lord wants you blessed so you can be a blessing. That's an uh, it's a cliche that's almost, uh, you know, worn out. But sometimes we listen to cliches and don't think about them. It's the truth. God wants you well-equipped financially. So you can build church buildings. You can plant churches all over this world so you can help somebody that needs, you know, um, some particular kind of medical care. I mean, the list is endless. But when you have an excess over all sufficiency, it is so you can abound to every good work. And that's what makes your faith work. God knows your heart. And when you're in it to do His will in this earth, bless other human beings, enable them to rise to a new level in the will and blessing of God, then He'll give you all the resource you ever need to do what you need to do. I mean, and that's the simple fact of the matter. That's why we've got an almost $40 million building here. It isn't because we had a rich sugar daddy that built it for us. It's because our hearts were to invest in the kingdom of God as opposed to investing in our own homes, our own um, little private agenda. We invested in the kingdom, and this is the result of it. And the testimonies that come back uh, reflect that God, the people that God uses to do something like this or any other project in the kingdom, and they use their money for that purpose, then the things that they forewent or, or were for, foregone in their life because they used their money for God's reason, he brings it in super abundantly, more than you can ask or think, and does stuff in your life. This is why faith works by love. So we see these as two examples of a larger context of understanding we have to have regarding the love of God. It's always got to be founded in truth. It's always going to have to do with your faith. And that's why it says in the Word that it never fails never grows old or obsolete. This is the royal law, the only law that we're to, to live by in this New Testament covenant that we have. I shared some scripture last week. I'll start there again. This was all for free. Uh, this doesn't count on my time, by the way. <laughs> but basically, uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, the word love doesn't actually show up here. But it says, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. No, God's not hiding from you until you get holier than thou. Until you've uh, become so holy, holy means separated unto God. And for most people, most religious mindsets, holy means somebody that lives completely by the uh, word of God, every I dotted, every T crossed, but that's not really the case. I mean, certainly our pattern of life will change uh, to accommodate the principles of God's word, but you don't have to make yourself holy in order to, you know, see the Lord. The Lord's not withholding himself from you. He just lives on a plane or in a place that you have to go in order to sense him. 
I mean, some people have open visions and see him. Talk to Jesus. I've never had one of those. Uh, I'm married to someone who has. Ticks me off because I'm the pastor. But I've never had that kind of encounter with the Lord. I've certainly sensed his presence in ways that uh, have been, uh, well, it's, it's, it's hard to even comment on them. I've gotten caught up. I have not ever seen the Lord in the way that a lot of people have. Moses wanted to see it. The Lord showed Moses his hinder parts, you know, because he couldn't, he couldn't survive a complete revelation of God. Uh, the, you know, the intensity of that would have been more than flesh could have stood. But God's not hiding himself from you. He wants you to know him, to experience him, to see him whether it's with the eye of faith, the eye of your spirit, your heart, or whether it is an open vision, he wants you to be convinced of his reality and his love for you. So he's not going to withhold himself from you. But he said, if you don't give yourself over to love, then you're not in the same room he's in. You're trying to sense the Lord somewhere he is not because he only op occupies a room called love. And when we read this verse, follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, we think, well, what's this got to do with the love of God? That's what holiness is. Holiness isn't separation unto a set of laws that you've got to obey in order to be a Christian that's worthy to see the Lord. God defines love as himself. He is the person of love. The Bible says over and over again, God is love. And so holiness is separation unto a life of love. Holiness is separation unto living by the law of love, the royal law of love, putting other people before yourself. And then you can experience peace with all men. You'll never experience peace with all men without learning how to live by the law of love. Uh, the peace is actually defined as absence of conflict. That's the most basic definition of all, and it's obvious. Peace is the absence of conflict. It goes a step further when you're talking about with the brethren, with people that are saved. It says that we should be one heart, one mind, striving together with them for the faith of the gospel. It comes into a, a place of concord and harmony with people whose belief systems are grounded in the same principles that yours are, which is the Word of God. But for most people out there, they don't know the Word like you do. They're not grounded with you. And so the larger definition of peace, absence of conflict, becomes important. And so you'll never experience the absence of conflict with men until you're separated to God, who is the personification of love, you are separated unto a life based on the love of God and living by that royal law of love. And so we see that these provide a context of understanding. You want to know how to live in love uh, or if you are uh, living by that law? then is there an absence of conflict in your life or not? Because the presence of conflict means that there's some place in that particular relationship or other relationships that you're not, you're not loving properly. You're not living by that royal law or the conflict wouldn't be there. And therefore, you're not holy. You're not separated into a life of love. And so then the next verse becomes real relevant to you, if that's the case, says, look diligently to this. To what? To being separated unto a life of love. Look diligently, lest any man, first of all, fail of the grace of God. The grace of God is the power of God to do things you can't do and to have things you shouldn't have because you can't earn them. Salvation is an example of that. It's a, it's a free gift of God but we receive it by faith, right? 
Healing is a grace of God. You receive it by faith, right? Supernatural provision of God, Jehovah Jireh, that happens to you as a grace of God. But every grace, every, um, every part of your life that God's grace is going to be manifest, His unmerited favor, His supernatural provision, in whatever arena of life it may be, that's what His grace is, has got to be received by faith. You receive, beginning with salvation, you receive it by faith. You can't logically understand how some guy dying on the cross, and even if he was raised from the dead, and there's a lot of controversy about that in the body of Christ, which, well, that's not the body of Christ. You got to believe in the resurrection or you're practicing something else. Uh, but, you know, it is still a fact that these particular graces, beginning with salvation, have to be received by faith. You have to decide you're going to believe and then do what's necessary to cultivate faith. Faith comes by hearing. It's a principle that you continue to hear as you read the Word of God or read books or listen to tapes and you continue to reinforce by what you hear the things that you've decided to believe from the Bible. You realize your belief system. I don't know why I'm going here because this isn't my sermon today. But you do realize that your belief system, whatever it is right now, comes from the things you've heard the most of. Since you were born into this earth and were able to distinguish uh, human language as a little baby, then your belief system is being shaped even at that very moment by what your parents say to you, how they relate to you. If they tell you that you're just a loser and you'll never be a success, Unfortunately, that's true for a lot of kids. Uh, they weren't really wanted when they were born, and they hear a lot of trash growing up like that. But the sad part about it is that's what they believe because that's all they've ever heard. That I'm, you know, or if they're told since they're a little baby that the color of their skin is wrong, they're going to be persecuted, and they're going to be, uh, you know, there's going to be racial bias and prejudice against them all the days of their life. Don't be telling your kids that. Because they'll believe it, and that's what will draw it to them. We are all equal in the body of Christ. There is no male, no female, no Jew, Gentile, no bond, no free. You should be preaching that to your kids. Because if they think, because of what you've said in front of them or to them all their life, that they're going to they're gonna have a lifetime of persecution, that's what they will get. Well, so see, this is all stuff that, uh, you know, I was going to be real disciplined this service and finish right on time. But you're, you're looking like you're going to be here until 1 or 1.30. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. But basically, so, you know, when you read these verses, follow peace with all men in holiness, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. I mean, you need to be serious about these things or you will fail of the grace of God, meaning, not meaning that God's going to withdraw his grace from you. It's been extended to everyone ever born in this world and it's still there. But you have to receive it and you receive it by faith and faith only works by love. So if you're not separating your life unto holiness, you can't even believe for the grace of God to be manifest. If you have an indices Bible, you'll see a, a number by uh, fail, and the center reference column tells you what it really says, which is fall from. God isn't removing his grace from you. you uh, you're falling from it when you refuse to base your life on the law of love because that's the, that's the only way you can know God, which is what C is a reference to. Know him in a personal way is to occupy the same room he does, and that's a room called love. It's the only way his grace can manifest itself in your life because you can't believe for that grace except by love, realizing that the Lord, you know, is 
blessing you, enabling you, empowering you. Not so you can have enough money to retire early. I already said that. Not so you can get healed and be a fat, happy couch potato. You're the body of Christ. You're his hands. You're his feet. You're his mouthpiece. When you are healed and whole, you're going to be a lot more effective in the kingdom of God. So it's not just about you getting over your pain or discomfort of whatever infirmity you're dealing with, just so you can be comfortable. Now, God wants that for you. He loves you. Redemption includes healing. But you need to understand your effectiveness in the kingdom of God and being an influence to expand that kingdom is going to be enhanced by your testimony of good health or healing. So at any rate, it says that if you don't look diligently toward living a life of love, then you will fall from the grace of God and it says, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Bitterness, I described as one of the most deadly forms of spiritual cancer you can have. It's real easy to be bitter. A lot of people like to focus on how they have been wronged in the course of their life. And the more they consider how badly they've been wronged, the more bitter they become. Bitterness is rooted in animosity, even hatred. We know as Christians we're not supposed to hate anybody, but a little animosity seems to sneak under the door a lot of times. You just don't like somebody because they have crossed your wires up. They don't believe like you do. They have perhaps treated you poorly or, or something. And so this little root of bitterness begins to arise in you. Bitterness is the fruit of something else that's called a root. It says, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. Bitterness is the fruit that a deeper root will produce. And that deeper root is unforgiveness. When somebody has wronged you so badly, that you haven't been able to forgive them, then that root of unforgiveness will produce this bile called bitterness. It erodes the soul. It robs you of your peace and your joy and any chance at happiness. Every time you think of that incident or that person, that bile begins to rise inside of you. It's almost a physical thing. And it destroys the quality of life that you are to have in Christ. And it begins with unforgiveness. And here's the relationship to the context of love that we're talking about in this series. The first thing that love gives is forgiveness. It is the first thing that we are to give somebody is forgiveness. You can't give them anything else until you give them forgiveness. This is the first thing God gave us when God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son who was to be the instrument of redemption or forgiveness of our sin, of our misdeeds, to open the door to his forgiveness of us. The first thing that love does is give forgiveness. Say amen to that. Amen. I've had so many people over the years of my ministry 42 now, I guess it is, 43. So many people say to me, you don't know what they did to me, Pastor. I can't forgive them. And there have indeed been some horrible tales of abuse as children. And I mean, just horrible things. But you have to forgive them. Not for their sake, but for your sake because it'll spring up into such bitterness and bile within you that you'll barely be able to function as you get older. It gets worse as you get older. These things, these, 
these points of unforgiveness in your life will produce such terrible bitterness. It's like, and very often it's with people that you're supposed to be close to. Very often this is family members. Very often this is people that you know so well, you know their faults and the, and the things they've done wrong better than they do probably. And so this is where the enemy comes to you. When a marriage begins to go south, it's always about offense of one party to the other. You know, maybe the guy was unfaithful, ran out. Well, if that marriage is to ever stand a chance, the wife's going to have to forgive that. Now, forgiveness and trust are two different things. Trust has to be earned. It takes ignorance to invest trust in someone that has demonstrated they can't be trusted in a certain area. But forgiveness is different than trust. It's a release of the responsibility for their action because you know we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, rulers of darkness and high places. They got influenced by the wrong spirit. And the warfare they're under is something you might have a hard time even imagining. You need to forgive them so you can move on in your life in a more effective, in a more effective way. So, oh, wow. I've gotten so far off track, I'm going to have to figure out how to get back on. Well, let me say this then. So we, got, we have to deal with the, ten, uh, the tendency that our carnal nature has to hold on to things that people have done to us and to allow that root of unforgiveness to produce bitterness which is going to ruin your life. It'll only grow until you get rid of it. You can't mow it off at the top. You don't get rid of crabgrass by mowing it, cutting off the obvious fruit. You can go to church and rejoice in the Lord and get happy one Sunday afternoon for a little while, but if you don't dig out the root, that stuff is going to come back again. And the root of bitterness is unforgiveness. So, and this is the first thing that love gives. So understand this as being an important context of our understanding. Love gives forgiveness before it, before it can do anything else. That's where it begins. So let's talk about how conflict is generated. This all started with a relationship. Uh, we weren't following after peace Conflict breaks out, uh, meaning conflict, perceived conflicts of interest, viewpoints, differences, whatever, and we keep hammering away at it until it becomes a real issue in our heart. Uh, it becomes an issue of forgiveness uh, first, and then the bitterness will begin, to, will begin to show up. So if we can eliminate the conflict, and love will do that, how does that, how do we gain a, again, a contextual understanding of how uh, we can eliminate conflict, how we can eliminate uh, these confrontations with people, these little minor wars and the bitterness that begins to be stirred? How can we deal with that? There's one word that you have to really come to appreciate, and that is offense. You have to become someone who does not deal in offense, either in giving it by being offensive or offending someone else or receiving it, not allowing yourself to become offended even when they have done you wrong. The word offend means to threaten. Somebody becomes defensive when they feel threatened. And there are many different levels that people are threatened on. You can feel a physical threat and fear will, fear will begin to rise and become a part of the equation. 
but there are many other forms that a threat can take. You can threaten somebody's self-image. You can threaten a person's self-esteem, the way they see themselves. You can threaten somebody's financial security. If you happen to be a boss and you're not smart enough uh, to communicate in a way consistent of the word and you tell them, hey, you don't get this right, you're going to get fired. So there's a threat to their financial solvency and their welfare that comes uh, through that kind of communication. If we can learn to conduct our relationships without offense being part of them, we have eliminated the majority, the vast majority of the conflict uh, that would otherwise have arisen. And if we eliminate the conflict, we eliminate the, uh, the root of unforgiveness and the bitterness that it produces because they don't need to be forgiven if they can avoid offense, if they can avoid threatening somebody else's welfare without even knowing it. I did a series on leadership years ago that talked about a study uh, that a couple of guys back in the 70s, Heilman, Heilman and Horstein, I still remember their names, had made, and they wrote a book called Managing Human Resource in Organizations. And their big revelation, they didn't know it was a Bible principle, they stumbled on it by mistake, but their, their big revelation was to eliminate the threat environment. In the corporate workplace, eliminate the threat environment. As a manager, as a leader, as an owner, an entrepreneur, whatever, you've got to be able to communicate with people under your authority in a way that doesn't call, cause them to feel threatened in some way. And being aware of the possible threats is an important part of learning to lead people effectively. You can't force somebody to follow your lead. They got to want to follow your lead. Well, see, I'm getting off on another rabbit trail here that I'll try to avoid. But essentially, uh, when you offend somebody, you are threatening them on some level. It might be a threat to their ego or their pride, which they're not, they're not supposed to be operating in anyway, but it's still a threat. And it will produce the kind of response you don't want in that relationship. Because their walls will go up. They'll become defensive. They won't be open to a lot of what you have to say because they, they don't want that. I mean, you, you stepped across a, a line with them already. So learning not to offend becomes important. It's, and it has to do with two different directions. You're being offensive to somebody or you're being offended by somebody. Let's look at that one first. Being offended by somebody. Acts 24, 16 says this. Acts 24, 16. Paul speaking and he says, Herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. He's saying he can't even be conscious in his human consciousness. There has to be a void of offense toward God or offense toward men. A lot of people get offended toward God. They believe in God. It would take somebody intellectually dishonest to look at the complexity of this creation and say there's no God. Most people know there has to be a divine origin to what we call life for this to have been the result of random chance violates the very laws of empirical or empiricism or science. Uh, in one area, probability mathematics, which says that the level of complexity we experience in this life, for it to have ever happened by random chance would have been impossible. It's like, you know, 50 to an infinite power. It just can't happen. 
that this level of complexity would occur by random chance. Now, how did I get on that? But the point is, the point is, uh, I forgot what the point is. Okay. Um, all right. Offense toward God. Thank you. That's where I got off on this. I mean, people know there's a God. If they, if they have any degree of intellectual honesty at all. Somebody says, I don't believe in God. I feel like smacking them because they're just lying right to my face. Or either they're stupid, one of the two. Pardon me, and I don't mean to be offensive to any atheist that might be listening in today. But it's true. Because the level of complexity of this life says there has to be a God. And most people realize that but they get offended at God when they don't know anything about him. They pray two or three times that he'll heal their child or heal their body or, uh, or uh, that they'll, you know, they're going to tithe because they want to see the open windows of heaven in their life and they hadn't seen that. And they feel like they've gone to church enough and given enough money and they've prayed enough that things ought to be different. And so they begin getting offended toward God. You certainly can't allow that to happen. All good things come down from the Father of lights who is above. All good things. And so, you know, offense toward God, you talk about shooting yourself in the foot. Man, that's, that's uh, but it also says offense toward men, meaning that there's not even going to be a conscious awareness of the people that have offended you and what those offenses were. Amen. Wow. Amen. We see that actually spelled out in more depth in the um, love chapter, 2 Corinthians 13. Look there, 2 Corinthians 13, 4. I'll try to hurry this up a little bit. 2 Corinthians 13, 4. Charity, this is the King James rendering. And so the word agape Love is rendered charity in the King James, old King James. So I'll just replace it with love. Most other translations do. Love suffers long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. And then the grand summary, charity or love never fails. Now, I should probably say this about that. The word faileth means never grows old, never becomes obsolete. It's always the relational mandate. It doesn't mean that you can manipulate somebody else's free moral agency if you love them enough. They can always reject you, and, and there will be those who do. Uh, but you never fail to make love your fallback. It's where your greatest successes relationally and therefore in life are going to occur. But now, um, let's read uh, verse 5 from the Amplified for a moment. It is not conceited, love, is not conceited, arrogant, and inflated with pride. It is not rude, unmannerly, and does not act unbecomingly. Love, God's love in us, does not insist on its own rights or its own way, for it is not self-seeking. It is not touchy or fretful or resentful, touchy. See a lot of touchy Christians around here. I'm glad I have a cool spirit. That was supposed to be kind of funny because I get a little touchy about certain things. But, but then here's the summary. It takes no account of the evil done to it. It pays no attention to a suffered wrong. This is what love does. And love only, I mean, faith only works by love. Love and faith are connected in order for you to make progress in the kingdom of God. So you have to believe this is your best, this is your best recourse relationally. You have to believe it. 
before you'll ever do it. If you're constantly checking up, so, oh, well, I didn't do that today, and I didn't do that today, and I didn't do, do that today. I repent, Lord. But you don't change anything. That's not going to get it. I mean, these are things you have to believe are in your best interest. Don't think about the suffered wrong, because the more you think about it, the more angry you're going to become, the more uptight you're going to be. Ask me how I know. It does no good to dwell on how badly you were treated or betrayed or what someone else did to you. God still loves the person that did that to you. You can love them too, even if it has to be for, from a distance. You love people by praying for them. So if there's some people you can't be around because they simply will not yield uh, to the logic of mutual agreement regarding a particular issue, they won't agree to the need to defuse the conflict. The first step in conflict resolution has to be gaining the other party's agreement that resolution has to come. Otherwise, this is simply going to worsen and we can't be in this place. And once they agree to begin addressing the need to resolve the conflict, progress can be made. But, um, all right. Gosh. Thank you, Lord. Well, let me just uh, look at one other. Uh, well, a couple of others, actually. 1 Corinthians 10.32 tells us that we're not to give offense. Give, offense. give none offense. Neither to the Jews, Gentiles, or the church of God. That covers people of the old covenant, the new covenant, no covenant at all. It says give none offense. It's not something that you should be unknowledgeable about. Offense mostly occurs initially with words. And so when it talks about not giving anybody offense, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 right quickly. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. That means built up, building somebody else up that it may minister grace unto the hearers, God's unmerited favor, his blessing in their life. Then you can look at verse 31. After you communicate this way, now you can let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. But only now. After you've cleaned up the way you talk. And of course... This is something that I've already mentioned. I taught here in leadership, James chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 2. James chapter 3, verse 2 tells us the same thing in a different way. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man. That word perfect means mature. You've grown up as a Christian when you learn to communicate without offending somebody in word. And that also positions you to influence their life. It says you're able also to bridle the whole body. Now, most of the other translations of this verse uh, refer to the body as your physical body. That if you want to be able to control your physical body, you've got to start talking right. And there's truth in that. But I think the most important lesson of this passage is other people. Because if you were to look up the word body in the Strong's Concordance, it's talking about uh, one of the primary definitions is a corporate group of people. Could be social, could be uh, business or vocational, could be a church. It calls uh, one, one aspect of the body is the mystical body. That would be the body of Christ, which we can't see uh, in this you know, arena of life. It's universal in magnitude and it covers everybody that's been born again and we make up the mystical body of Christ. But there are other kinds of bodies. 
There's a group of people in your neighborhood that you probably spend time with. Uh, that's a group of people that you can begin exercising positive influence in their lives. It may be a group of people, you're a supervisor or manager at a business or have a business, or it could be <clears throat> a civic organization. It could be a church. But what it's telling us is that if you learn Oh, how did I get in Timothy all of a sudden? I was wondering where James went. Oh, I'll just step here. If you learn not to offend in word, you can bridle, and that word means guide. Or you can influence the direction of the whole body that you're in relationship with, whether it's a neighborhood group, civic group, business co-worker group, you might be the boss. I've taught this in leadership. You've got to be able to communicate with them without offending anybody before you can influence them to give you their best effort to follow the lead that you want them to follow. In other words, this goes back to the threat environment, that book written by Heilman and Horstein. That's the way you avoid offending somebody you make them, you, you don't give them the need to feel defensive because you don't offend them by avoiding the threat environment. Whether it's threatening their self-esteem, their ego. I mean, I hear guys in various positions of authority all the time say, well, you idiot, why did you do that? Well, boy, that's about the worst thing you could say. Because you have, you have offended his sense of value or worth as an employee and what he can add to the company. But at any rate, uh, the Bible is full of ways, and I'm going to wrap this up now. The Bible is full of ways to avoid offending people. And this way is bet, the best way to keep you from being offended is for you to stop sowing seeds of offense in somebody else's life. Because the more seed of offense, offensive seeds you sow, uh, the more of a harvest of being offended you're going to reap. The whole kingdom of God works on the principle of sowing and reaping. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Hmm. I'm done. I'm just going to have to continue this next week because I can't find a stopping place. Amen. But, but so, you know, I guess you could say that the context of understanding I really wanted you to have today for operating in the love of God is being offense-free. Whether you're talking about being offended yourself or offending other people, to the extent that you can be offense-free, you understand one of the main purposes for the love of God.